You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Bhutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now, the, the title of our message this morning is The Gospel Under Attack. The Gospel Under Attack. Now, if you remember, a few weeks ago, uh, in, in our introduction to the book of Galatians, I told you that the, that the theme of this book, the book of Galatians, is freedom. And really, it was the freedom of the gospel that's under attack here in Galatians chapter 2. Now, when I say that, by the way, you know, you might think of, of perhaps that, that, that high school foot, football coach named Joe Kennedy a few years ago who was fired for praying. After every game, he would rush out to the middle of the field and he would pray. Whether they won or lost, he would pray, so the school district fired him. Or you might think of, of the Home Depot worker named Trevor Keezer, who in, in, in Palm Beach, Florida, was written up and almost fired, threatened to be fired, for simply having a button on his apron that said, One Nation Under God. And so they wrote him up and told him if he didn't take it off, he could lose his job. However, the, the attack against the gospel here in Galatians chapter 2 this morning was not coming from the government. It was not coming from the workplace. Rather, it was coming from so-called Christians. You know, it's been said that, that the devil isn't attacking the church anymore. He's joining it. And so this was an attack by so-called Christians. And so in Galatians chapter 2, Paul's defending himself this morning against the, the, the accusations from this group called the Judaizers, who, who were saying that he was unqualified, that he was self-appointed, and, and, and that he didn't have the backing of the real apostles in Jerusalem. In fact, they would say that, that Paul was preaching a different gospel than, than, than the gospel that was being preached by the real apostles like Peter, James, and John and the rest over in Jerusalem. So now as we go back to verse 1, Paul now is making his defense. This is Paul's defense. And in verse 1, Paul says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Now let's pause there. Now, Paul is referring here to, to, to a council meeting between himself and the rest of the apostles in Jerusalem that we can read about in Acts chapter 15. Now, by the way, remember, last week we, we saw that Paul was sharing his testimony, right? The story of how, how Paul became a Christian and how, how after he became a Christian, after he got saved, he did not go up to Jerusalem right away um, immediately, nor did he, he write a book uh, uh, about all the amazing encounters that he had with Jesus on that Damascus road and, and then go on a, on a book signing tour and, and a public speaking tour, nor did he try to get the apostles Peter, James, and John and the rest of the 12 apostles to endorse him him and his ministry. Instead, we saw last week that he went to the desert, Paul said, for three years. For three years. And so as we mentioned last week, just as the rest of the apostles spent three years with Jesus while Jesus was on the earth, learning from Jesus, Jesus teaching them the scriptures, teaching them the word, in the same way, Paul spent three years uh, in the desert getting uh, what we called last week his BD degree in ministry. Not his bachelor's of the arts, no, his backside of the desert degree, where Jesus was teaching him and instructing him for three years. But then Paul said after that, after those three years, he then briefly went to Jerusalem and met with Peter and James. And, and they agreed that, that Paul should go out to the Gentiles with Barnabas and preach the gospel. Well, now, 14 years later, now Paul and Barnabas are going back to Jerusalem, hoping to settle this, this huge dispute. Now, what was this dispute about? Well, 
uh, first of all, Paul at this point in his life had traveled some 700 miles by foot and, and, and some 500 miles by sea preaching the gospel and planting churches. But along the way, everywhere he went, there was this group called the Judaizers who dogged his every step and, and tried to pollute his message. They tried to pollute the waters. And so Paul and Barnabas, they now end up in the, in the Greek city of Antioch. Now, Antioch at this point had really become the hub of all the Gentile Christian churches in the region of Galatia. And so it was kind of like the capital of Christianity in that area. And sure enough, the Judaizers show up again. They come in and they pollute the waters. They pollute Paul's message. And here's what they say. In Acts chapter 15, verse 1, it says, And certain men came down from Judea, that'd be the Judaizers, and taught the brethren, saying, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so they they were really preaching a false gospel. Now, not only were they preaching a false gospel, but they were also undermining Paul's authority. They'd come in and they'd be like, you know what? We've come from Jerusalem. We came from headquarters where where the apostles are. And, And we can tell you from firsthand experience, Paul is not a real apostle. He's not one of the 12 apostles. In fact, they would say, you know what? He's actually not even preaching to you the whole gospel. The Judaizers would say, listen, that the truth is that it's just not as easy as just believing in Jesus. They would say, in addition to believing in Jesus, you also have to become Jewish. You have to keep the customs and the traditions and the laws of Moses. So it's believing in Jesus plus keep the customs of Moses. And so this was a false gospel. Now, by the way, I said this group followed Paul everywhere he went. So by the time Paul went to a a, a Greek city called Corinth, they followed him there. And when the Judaizers got to Corinth, uh, they they showed up to town bragging about their own credentials, bragging that, that they had these supposed letters of recommendation from the apostles in Jerusalem. And then they attacked Paul saying, listen, if Paul really was an apostle, well, then he would have letters of recommendation, just like we have letters of recommendation. And so then Paul, he, he, he speaks to that criticism in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, where Paul says, are we beginning to praise ourselves again? Are, are, are we like others who need to bring to you letters of recommendation or who ask you to write such letters on their behalf? The only letter of recommendation we need is you yourselves. Your lives are a letter written on our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. He says this quote-unquote letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. And it is carved out not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. So there's a couple things. First of all, Paul is saying, hey, listen, the only proof that we really need to prove to you that Jesus Christ really called us, that Jesus really called me, it it, it doesn't need to be a little piece of paper, some letter of recommendation. No, listen, the proof that Jesus really called me, he says, is you. The very fact that Jesus used me to change your life is proof that he sent me. He says, "You're you're like living letters of recommendation. Now, not only that, but I think this also points out that, you know, we tend to put too much emphasis on the right credentials, right? You know, sometimes we think that, you know, uh, that that if we just had an impressive resume, then then God can use us. So we think we need a degree from Bible college or a degree from cemetery, I mean, seminary. Uh, You know, we we need a master's in divinity. We need a, a, a doctorate in theology or whatever else. No, listen, those are good things. It's 
good to have an education. Nothing wrong with those, with those degrees. Those are good things. God can use those. But at the same time, that does not mean that if you do not have those degrees, that God cannot use you. In fact, listen to this. I believe that God is more interested in your availability than he is in your ability. There's a, a saying that's been floating around Calvary Chapel, uh, the Calvary Chapel movement since the early 70s. It goes like this. God doesn't call the qualified, rather he qualifies the called. So maybe you don't have those qualifications right now. That doesn't mean that God can't use you. In fact, for that matter, that doesn't mean that God couldn't give you those qualifications along the way. And so, because of this group called the Judaizers, who came in not only preaching a false gospel, but attacking and questioning Paul's apostleship. That's why Paul says, 14 years later, we went back to Jerusalem. So that's the context. That's what's happening here. And so now as we pick up the first five verses, uh, Paul is, is, is really confronting his accusers. His accusers. Verse 1 says again, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed to the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And so Paul says that, that when he went back to Jerusalem, he didn't go alone. It was him and Barnabas, but he also says that they brought with them Titus. Now, Titus was a, was a Greek who had become a Christian. And by the way, according to Acts chapter 15, verse 2, it wasn't just Titus that they brought with them. Acts chapter 15, verse 2 tells us that Paul and Barnabas were accompanied by some local believers. So, so Titus was a Greek who had become a Christian, but evidently they brought a handful of Greeks who had become a Christian. So basically what this was was, was Gentile show and tell. And so, you know, just as, just as uh, Joshua and Caleb, you know, and the 10 spies, they went into the promised land to spy out the land, and, and then they came back with a sample of the fruit from the land, you know, these big grapes to show how fruitful the land really was, that it really was a land flowing with milk and honey. So in the same way, Paul and Barnabas now bring back a sample of the spiritual fruit of the harvest that they've had among the Gentiles, and among them was Titus. And then Paul makes this point. He says, you know, and not even Titus, who was with me, uh, was, was forced to be circumcised even though he was Greek. Now, the point that Paul's making is simply this. He's saying, listen, when, when the apostles in Jerusalem, when they met Titus and they met these other Gentile uh, Christians, uh, you know, they just accepted them the way they were. They didn't force them to get circumcised. They didn't force them to, to, to convert to Judaism. They, they just accepted them the way they were. But then it's interesting, Paul says in verse 4, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in. So Paul calls these, these Judaizers false brothers. Uh, the, the New English Bible calls them sham Christians. The, the, the Phillips translation calls them pseudo-Christians. And so again, these Judaizers, they might have called themselves Christians, but the Bible calls them false Christians, pseudo-Christians. Their, their Christianity was a sham. It was a fraud. 
And so what these Judaizers were, were they were this strange hybrid who, who on the one hand believed that Jesus was the Savior, but on the other hand, they believed that Jesus was the Savior of the Jews. He was the Jewish Savior. So they would tell Gentiles, and that word Gentile, that's just a code word that means you, that you're not Jewish. So anybody who's not Jewish, they would say, uh, if, if they want to go to heaven, if they want to spend eternity with the true and living God, they first have to become Jewish. They have to convert to Judaism. They have to get circumcised, keep the law of Moses, and then they can believe in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And so they were preaching a false gospel. And so it's because of that, that that now Paul and all the apostles are gathered in Jerusalem for this council meeting to to determine once and for all, to decide once and for all which is better, uh, uh, the chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A or Popeye's. No, that's not, what they, that's not what they decided. Although I would say it's Chick-fil-A. I mean, after all, that's God's chicken. No, they, they gathered once and for all to decide what was, was salvation by grace alone or was salvation by grace plus. You know, grace plus religious works or, or grace plus keeping the law of Moses. And so they debate this. They go back and forth and forth and back. And then finally, in the middle of the council meeting, Peter stands up and reminds them how God had called Peter to go to the house of this Gentile named Cornelius, a Roman centurion. Peter goes there, he preaches the gospel, and Cornelius and his whole household believe in Jesus. They become Christians. In fact, they actually get baptized by the Holy Spirit and start speaking in tongues. And then it's very interesting. In the midst of this council meeting, Peter then makes an interesting point. He makes an interesting statement in Acts chapter 15, verse 11, and he says, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. Now, this is interesting. I mean, you would have expected uh, Peter, who's a Jew, uh, and he's talking to the rest of the, uh, of the apostles who are Jews as well, you would have expected Peter to say, you know what, they, the Gentiles, shall be saved the same way we, the Jews, are saved. But that's not what Peter says. In fact, Peter says the exact opposite. He says, we, the Jews, are saved the same way they, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are saved. Now keep in mind, the debate was over whether or not Gentiles needed to become Jews, if they needed to convert. You know, do, do, you know they, they were arguing, you know, do, do, they, do, do the Gentiles need to look like us and act like us and talk like us, keep our customs and, and our religious ceremonies? Do they need to convert to, 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 to our ways in order to be saved? And Peter settles the argument once and for all and says, no, we are saved the same way that they are saved, and that's by grace and grace alone. And it was settled right then and right there. Now it's on that note, as I pick it up in verses six through nine, that we see that there's only one gospel. There's only one gospel. Verse six, Paul then says, and from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, uh, when, when, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me uh, for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John... <laughs> who had seemed pillars, uh, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. There's a couple things that stand out here. 
Now, now first of all, the first thing that stands out is back in verse 6. We, we, we see this statement over and over again. But in verse 6, he says, to those who seemed influential. Now, of course, he's talking about the apostles in Jerusalem, right? Peter, James, John, the, the, the 12 apostles. In fact, later he calls them pillars in the church. But what's interesting is, is that four times in eight verses, he mentions the apostles, but each time it's with a degree of sarcasm. No, listen, I don't think he, 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 was, he was throwing shade at the apostles. I don't think he was trying to diss the apostles so much. He wasn't like, you know what, I don't care who they think they are. No, rather, I, I think he was throwing shade towards the Galatians themselves. It's as if he's saying to the Galatians, like, you know what, you guys, you Galatians, you, you care too much about authority. You care too much about rank. You care too much about position, about titles, you know, about pedestals that you put up people on. And, and you, know, you care too much about this. It's like you worship the ground they walk on. And so really, the sarcasm was directed to the Judaizers and anybody who was buying what the Judaizers were selling. But then in verse 7, it's interesting, because then Paul says, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the, to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. Now, this is a verse that has caused a lot of confusion. Let me just say that, that, that as you read this, the emphasis is on the who, not the what. In other words, the emphasis is on the audience, not the message. In other words, it's the same gospel going to two different groups. The gospel didn't change, the audience changed. It's the same gospel, two different groups. You know, it'd be like today if we said, you know what, we preached the gospel to the Russians and they preached the gospel to the Chinese. It's not, it's not a different gospel, it's the same gospel being translated into two different languages. The gospel being translated into Russian and the same gospel being translated into Chinese. Now, I, I, I bring that up because there is a rogue group of, 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 of Christians nowadays who would tell you that there are two different gospels. They would tell you there's a gospel for the Jews and there's a gospel for the non-Jews. They would tell you that Paul preached one gospel, but that Peter and the rest of the apostles were preaching a different gospel. That Paul preached the gospel of grace and they would say that, that, that Peter and the rest, they preached a gospel of works. But listen, it's not two different Gospels. It's the same Gospel, two different audiences. It doesn't say the Gospel of circumcision versus the Gospel of uncircumcision. It says the Gospel to the uncircumcised versus the Gospel to the circumcised. Same Gospel, two different audiences. And now with that, verse 10, we, we come to the bottom line of that council meeting. Verse 10 Paul says, only they asked us to remember the poor, that very thing I was eager to do. And so how does this council meeting end? Well, Paul says it ended with them saying, hey, remember the poor. Now, by the way, the poor uh, here is not talking about the poor in general, although that's a good thing. It's always good to, to do whatever we can to, to help those that are in need anytime that we can. However, here it's talking about a specific group of poor. It's specifically talking about the poor in Jerusalem. See, keep in mind that the, that the Christians in Jerusalem at this point were under severe persecution. Not only were they being physically attacked and, 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 and arrested and even murdered, but they're also being fired from their jobs, that they were being blackballed, blacklisted, and no one would hire them if they were a Christian. And so frankly, the only hope they had for survival was the generosity of the rest of the body of Christ. 
the only hope that the, that the Jewish Christians who were suffering in Jerusalem had for survival was the generosity of the Gentile Christians living in the Greek parts of the world. And so therefore, wherever Paul went and preached the gospel and planted churches, he always made sure he took up a special offering for the suffering Christians in Jerusalem. Now, by the way, the apostles, now we don't see it here in Galatians, but, but in, in Acts chapter 15, we see that the apostles, uh, the, the way that this council meeting ended was that James uh, drafted up a letter, all the rest of the apostles signed off on it, but they drafted up a letter, sent that letter with Paul and Barnabas, and it was a letter that settled once and for all that there's only one gospel, not a Jewish gospel, not a Gentile gospel, one gospel, and that the gospel is that whether you're Jew or Gentile alike, you're saved by grace alone. In fact, let me read a portion of that letter for you. We find that letter in Acts chapter 15, uh, verses 28 and 29. Uh, James and and the apostles, they say, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you. Now we'll pause there. No greater burden on you. In other words, they're saying, you know what? We're not going to put a burden on you to become Jewish. We're not going to ask you to convert to Judaism. We're not going to tell you to get circumcised, to keep the Sabbath, uh, to, to go to the temple, to, to go to the synagogue, to do any of these things. We're going to place no greater burden on you than these few requirements. They say you must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or, or, or the meat of strangled animals, or, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you do well. Farewell. Listen, those requirements we just read, really what that was is was, they were all references to idol worship. They were all references to, to idolatry. You see, you have to understand that, that the Greeks, the, the, the pagan Greeks in that day, whenever they would go to their temple and offer a sacrifice to the God that they worshiped at that temple, uh, they, they, they would offer that sacrifice uh, by, by killing the sacrifice, uh, by, by strangling it to death. And the reason they would strangle it to death was to keep the blood of the animal in the meat. And, and, and meanwhile, Jews, they, they did it completely different. When they went to the temple and offered a sacrifice, they would take a knife. They would, they would slaughter the sacrifice. They would hang the animal and bleed it. They would drain it of its blood. And it's interesting. In Leviticus chapter 17, uh, verse 10, Jewish people are told not to consume the blood of a sacrifice. That was called the lifeblood. This is not a verse, by the way, condemning blood transfusions. It's a, it's a verse condemning idol worship, you know, consuming, literally eating and consuming blood. They called it the lifeblood. Now, why? Well, because, you see, the pagans, on the other hand, they believed that, that every animal uh, the, 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 had, had sort of a, a spiritual power in their blood. And they believed that you could harness the spiritual power of that animal for yourself by consuming the animal's blood. And so that's why when the pagans offered a sacrifice, they strangled the animal to death to keep the blood in the meat. So when they ate the meat, they got the blood into them, hoping to harness the spiritual power of that animal. This was about idolatry, about paganism. Now, in the same way, he mentions uh, sexual immorality. Some translations say fornication. Just keep in mind that, that in these pagan temples, they often had what were called temple prostitutes. I'll let your imagination fill in the blanks. But you see, this was all about, about paganism. That when they went to the temple, they would sleep with these temple prostitutes. And so really, in a sense, all the apostles are simply saying is, listen, a saved life is a changed life. If he's really saved you, he's going to change you. You're not going to be the same person you used to be. And so they're basically telling the, 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 these Gentiles, they're saying, listen, 
We know that, that, that before you became a Christian, you used to be a pagan worshiper. You used to be an idol worshiper. You used to eat meat with blood in it, trying to get, a, uh, trying to get the animal's spiritual power for yourself. You used to have these temple prostitutes and all that. But listen, now that you're a Christian, now that you're saved, you should be changed. A saved person is a changed person. Now that he's saved you, he's going to change your life. You're not going to be the same person anymore. They're basically saying, listen, now that you're a Christian, you're no longer a pagan. They're saying, listen, there's no such thing as a, as a Christian pagan or, or a born-again idolater. You're, you're one or the other. And so now if you're a Christian, your life should be different than it was before you became a Christian. Now, by the way, keep in mind, I told you that, that one of the attacks that these Judaizers were launching against Paul was they would claim that he did not have the right credentials, that he didn't have these so-called letters of recommendation. Well, the truth of the matter is he did have a letter from the apostles. In fact, I just read a portion of it to you just a second ago from Acts 15. He, he had a letter. In fact, that letter uh, not only settled the issue once and for all that you're saved by grace, but that letter actually validated Paul's authority as well. In fact, let me read another portion of that letter for you. From Acts chapter 15, verses 24 and 25, uh, the apostles write and say, Since we have heard that, that, that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your soul, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men with our, our, our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen. Paul had all the proof he needed to, to shut these guys up. He had that proof right in his back pocket. And so we wonder, well, well if, if Paul had this evidence, if, if he had this letter, why didn't Paul pull out that letter? I mean, here they are. They're accusing him of, of not having the right credentials. They're accusing him of not having these letters of recommendation. Well, then why didn't he just pull out this letter and silence his critics right where they were standing? In fact, as I mentioned, these letters not only validated Paul, but you know what else? They also were proof that the Judaizers were nothing but, but frauds, nothing but, but, but flat-out liars. Because again, these Judaizers claimed that they came from headquarters. They claimed they came from the apostles in Jerusalem and that they were speaking on behalf of the apostles in Jerusalem. But the apostles in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 15, they say, we gave them no such commandments. Almost as if to say, we have no idea who these idiots are. Idiot, that was from the Greek, idiotes. And that is actually the Greek for idiot, idiotes. Yeah, just, you know, we, we don't even know who these guys are. Just a bunch of clowns. And so Paul had, had the letters. He had the documentation. And so we wonder, why didn't he pull it out? Why didn't he not just defend himself but rip these guys to shreds in the process? Well, listen, the title of our message, remember, was not Paul under attack. It was the gospel under attack. And first and foremost, it seems that Paul was more interested in defending the gospel than he was in defending himself. Now, listen, in the same way, can I say to you that, that there are going to be times in your life as a Christian, in your Christian life, where you're going to be slandered, you're going to be misunderstood, uh, you're going to be attacked in personal ways, and your character will be assassinated. Now, I don't know what you call that. I just call that Wednesday. It's just, it's just par for the course for me. It just kind of comes with the territory. And listen, this attack that I'm talking about, it's not just going to come from unbelievers. It's not just going to come from, from antagonistic non-Christians who hate Jesus and therefore hate you. But you know what? It's also going to come from, from so-called Christians. 
I mean, keep in mind, these Judaizers called themselves Christians. And they were attacking Paul. And you know what? In in, in those times, you're going to find that that you're going to have at your disposal all the proof you need, not only to vindicate yourself, but also to rip them to shreds in the process. And so in times like that, can I simply uh, put before you the example of the Apostle Paul to follow? That even though he was being personally attacked, even though he had all the evidence he needed, he chose to defend the gospel, not himself. In the same way, in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Paul said, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. So it just comes down to trusting God. Do you trust him enough to take care of you? Do you trust him enough to have your back? Do you trust him enough to silence your critics? Listen to this. Rather than pay back, how about pray back? You pray for your enemies. Love your enemies, Jesus said. Love those who curse you, the Bible says. I'll never forget, years ago, before Pastor Chuck Smith went home to be with the Lord, uh, at a pastor's conference, he was speaking to all the Calvary Chapel pastors. There almost 2,000 pastors. And, and he was exhorting us and, and reminding us that, you know what? In the ministry, you're going to face attack. You're going to be slandered. You're going to be criticized. People will say things to you they wouldn't say to their worst enemy. And, 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 and they're going to talk about your wife. They're going to talk about your family. And then he says this. He says, he says, you know what? Don't defend yourself. Let the Holy Spirit defend you. He says, if you try to defend yourself, who knows? The Holy Spirit might just say, go for it. If you think you can defend yourself better than I can defend you, have your way with it. Let's see how that goes. And then Chuck says, instead, let the Holy Spirit defend you, and you'll be the better for it. And you know what? All these years later, Pastor Chuck is right. And we even see that example with Paul, that while Paul was being personally attacked, rather than defending himself, he defended the gospel. By the way, not that the gospel actually needs any defense. It's not like it needs us to defend it, okay? I'm reminded of those words uh, of Charles Spurgeon when somebody asked him, they said, they said, Pastor, how do you defend the Bible? And Spurgeon laughed and he said, how do you defend the Bible? He says, man, that's like asking how you defend a lion. Just open the cage and it'll defend itself. And listen, the gospel doesn't need our defense, it needs our proclamation. The gospel doesn't need us to defend it, it just needs us to preach it and to share it. And and we let it out, we share it, and it will defend itself. It'll speak for itself. Amen? Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. 